This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, it's 7.07, it's Friday and can you believe it? It's the 1st of March. Uh, what happened to January and February? And of course, you're listening to The Morning Run. Philip C is in front of me and I'm Wong Xiaoning. Let's recap how global markets closed yesterday. Well, following inflation data, US markets were all in the green. The Dow was up 0.1%. S&P 500 up 0.5%. The Nasdaq was also up 0.9%. Over in Asia, it was a mixed bag. The Nikkei was down 0.1%. Hang Seng down 0.2%. But the Shanghai Composite up 1.9%. Singapore's STI up 0.1% and back home FBM KLCI continues its upward trajectory up 0.4%. Not too bad. We are still up 6.65% on a year-to-date basis. But joining us on the line for insights into what's moving markets is Shane Oliver, Chief Economist at AMP Capital. Good morning, Shane. Now, US equities have traded relatively flat this week except for today's bounce. So what would you attribute this week's relatively muted trading to? Is the stock market exuberance from the start of this year slowly dissipating? Look, I don't think so. I think the main factor leading to the sort of the relatively subdued trading uh, for most of the week was the um, uncertainty ahead of the US inflation data, which came out um, uh, on Thursday. And consequently, uh, because the, the market's been a bit twitchy, you know, we started the year off expecting something like eight cuts in the US, and that's been wound back. And then we got some higher CPI inflation data a few weeks back. So the market was waiting for that inflation data to come out, what they call the core PCE, which is an alternative measure of inflation. In the event, it came out in line with expectations, nothing untoward there, which of course uh, potentially leaves the Fed on track to start cutting in June. Uh, So actually shares then bounced uh, strongly on Thursday, uh, taking the US S&P 500 to a record high. So it looks like that exuberance is still there. Do you think this rally then has legs to continue? And what will the markets focus back on now? Well, I think the market will continue to focus on things like inflation, when the Fed will start cutting, but also economic activity. Uh, If the economy continues to remain relatively resilient, as it has done so far in the US, then the the markets won't mind if uh, the Fed only cuts, say, three times this year, as opposed to the seven or eight that were expected earlier in the year. So, so I think it, it remains a focus on inflation, interest rates, economic growth, and of course, profits. So far, the profit uh, numbers have been fairly good in the US. Um, but there is also a risk there that um, the market has had a very strong run up. We are looking at mm. above average price to earnings multiples. And so we, we are going to see periods of volatility and obviously geopolitical factors could play into that as well with the election in the US and various other geopolitical risks that could cause volatility. But broadly speaking, I think the market will do okay this year. And Shane, a pretty different story in in Australia, isn't it? I mean, the RBA uh, in your report says likely to start cutting rates only in September. So why is there this increased divergence between the US, Europe and Australia? Well, the divergence is partly because Australia uh, came out of the pandemic a little bit later I mean, we, we were, we're not as hard hit as those other countries, but we remained in a lockdown for longer. So consequently, when inflation took off in Australia, it lagged that in the US and Europe and elsewhere mm. by about six months. Uh, we didn't see the instantaneous flow through of higher energy prices from the war in Ukraine like they saw in Europe. So the, Europe and the US are about six months ahead of us in terms of the peak in inflation. 
uh, and then the subsequent fall. We are following them down. Our inflation rates have started to come down. Um, but, of course, it means that the Reserve Bank is a little bit behind where the Fed and the ECB are. The, uh, the, the latter two central banks are uh, somewhat neutral now, you know, starting to debate when they might start cutting interest rates, whereas in Australia, uh, there's still the potential of the RBA still warning they may still raise rates. So mm. it's slightly different, even though their tightening bias has become less severe. But I think we will catch up, and ultimately we do see the, the RBA cutting uh, it could come as early as the middle of the year if the Fed starts um, uh, around June. Um, but, yeah, we could get a bit of a lag as well, so it could blow out to that August-September timeframe I was talking about. That's why the New Zealand dollar, the Aussie dollar, have been under so much pressure, isn't it? Do you see the recovery in the same trajectory then? Well, it's a bit of a, a unusual one. On the one hand, there has been more optimism, optimism about the global economy that normally means downwards pressure on the US dollar and upwards pressure on cyclical currencies like the Australian dollar and often the New Zealand dollar. Now, we haven't seen that to the same degree. We've said a little, little bit of that. The Aussie dollar is off its lows, um, but I think it's been constrained to some degree because there's still uncertainty about China uh, and you know, how strong growth will be in China. We've seen the iron ore price come off a little bit lately. Mm. Uh, and so that's sort of weighing to some degree. And, and I guess the other aspect is that when you look around the world, the US economy has held up pretty well compared to other countries, and that's supporting the US dollar to some degree. Uh, optimism about the US, the AI tech story is partly playing into that, and that, of course, is helping the US dollar stay relatively resilient. So I am expecting the Australian dollar to rise this year, but uh, it may be somewhat constrained by that um, ongoing resilience in the value of the US dollar. Okay, you highlighted China. We want to get a sense of how important China remains as a trading partner to Australia and there are geopolitical tensions between Australia and China. So what does this mean for the Australian economy? Well, it depends how those geopolitical tensions play out and what happens to the Chinese economy. Uh, yeah, up until the pandemic, we had something like 40% of our exports or goods exports going to China. Uh, through the course of the pandemic, um, there was various tensions between Australia and China, partly as part of that global uh, West-China tensions that were starting to build. Um, China did put restrictions on some Australian exports and the Chinese economy also was quite weak. Uh, that saw that, that trade share actually decline. It fell below 30%. Um, <clears throat> but the Australian economy wasn't really affected. It sort of just kept... Uh, excuse me, kept motoring along um, as it was able to divert its exports to other countries. Uh, now we're seeing some of those restrictions being removed. I think Chinese maybe concluded, well, they weren't working, they weren't doing what they thought they would do uh, because the Australian economy remained resilient. Um, so the lesson from that is that maybe Australia is not as sensitive to China as often assumed, but it's, it still depends on how quickly the adjustment occurs. If we go into a um, immediate break in terms of our trade flows with China, then that would be a major problem. But if it's a gradual break over time, a gradual adjustment over time, then Australia will move on, much as it moved on from Japan being our biggest export market to China. And then prior to that, uh, you know, the US has declined in importance and prior to that, the UK has declined in importance. So we have seen gradual adjustments over time and Australia seems to be able to, to move on to other markets. 
Oh, and I guess then the broader question is, where do you see geopolitical tensions then shape overall global markets then? Because it really was a big issue in uh, 2023. Do you see them shape in certain fame ways in 2024? Well, it's interesting. 2023 saw a lot of geopolitical issues. And of course, as did 2022 with the war in Ukraine. But unlike in 2022, those geopolitical issues didn't have as much impact on markets. Or if it did, it was short term. You know, obviously, the the Gaza, Hamas, uh, Hamas, Israel war. Um, but you know, the, the impacts are not nearly as severe as initially feared. Um, so we could have another year like that. Um, but Nevertheless, investors do need to be a little bit cautious and mindful that these things could flare up. You know, so far the situation in the Middle East has not led to a huge surge in oil prices. But if other countries like Iran are brought directly into the conflict, then it could have a bigger impact, and that would be a a negative for investment markets. But trying to predict when this will happen, I think, is incredibly, or if it will happen, is incredibly difficult. Um, and as we saw in 2023, geopolitics turned out to be significant, but it didn't have a, a major impact or lasting impact on investment markets. So I think geopolitical uh, issues and risks, and of course, the US election is a big one. There's something investors need to keep an eye on, um, but oftentimes you can't really decide what to do until after something flares up and because it's very hard to get the timing of the flare up. If you take the US election, for example, uh, lots of concern around whether Donald Trump will win again, uh, but still a long way to go before we get to the election. And of course, after the election in 2016, share markets rallied around the world after Donald Trump's victory. So um, it's, it's, it's hard to know which way to play it in advance. You've really got to wait until it happens and then, then respond, I think. All right. Thank you very much for your time. That was Shane Oliver, Chief Economist at AMP Capital. Now, let's turn our attention to some of the results that came out last night in the United States. First off is Dell, which so happens to be the computers that we use in our office. Uh, Shares of Dell rose by more than 15% during extended trading after reporting fourth quarter results that really exceeded expectations and showed rising demand for AI service. Revenue in the fourth quarter did fall by 11% year-on-year to $22.3 billion, but that was still better than the $22.2 billion that was expected. I have many conversations with my Dell PC and involves a lot of expletives, but in regardless, I think the Dell numbers were very good. Dell increased its annual dividend by 20% to $1.78. Dell's infrastructure unit, which includes servers, reported $9.3 billion in revenue for the quarter. It is down 6% year-on-year, but up from 10% from the previous quarter. And I, th- I think that was also driven by these AI-optimized servers, right? That rose by nearly 40% sequentially. And of course, there's also a backlog of $2.9 billion worth of orders. Backlog, okay. So there's demand, but you can't make it fast enough. Uh, sales of personal computers, however, fell by 12% year-on-year to $11.7 billion Commercial sales also fell by 11%, while consumer in revenue did increase by 19%. Now, does the street like this name? The stock is already up 23.7%, outpacing the Nasdaq return of 7.2%, gross indicative yield, not much to talk about, less than 2%, while forward P's are 13 times. Do Does the street believe this name? Has it restru- kind of rebranded itself as the sexy it AI, so. AI hardware company to look at? And the answer is yes, because there are 16 buys, two holes, just three sells. 
consensus target price for this stock is actually below the current share price, 89 US dollars. Mm. Even during regular market hours, it was already up $1.41 to $94.66. Looks like they don't really care whether you're not happy with the Dell. People are buying these computers. So this is a very interesting take. I mean, we always think of AI being NVIDIA, Microsoft, right? But I guess it's another dimension to it where it's about the hardware now, right? Mm. How do you get the hardware ready? And so whether we start seeing applications and the flow through of AI beneficiaries in other stocks and counters like Dell is the thing to look out for. Well, some people say even banks are AI beneficiaries as they use AI technology mm-hmm. to respond to customers, to come up with uh, better ways processing. So I think, yes, definitely. But of course, the the cream of the crop can only be NVIDIA, right? The best performing stock on the S&P 500. That's the gold standard. Up next, we'll cover the top stories in the newspapers and portals this morning. Stay tuned for that. BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.